Yeah, just as a way of introduction, again, my name is Rich. Uh, for those who I haven't had a chance to meet, I think I've been able to meet most everybody here, maybe bar one or two of you. Um, but again, it's so good to be with you all, though. Um, over the last three months, I've been praying for you all. I first learned of Harvest a little while ago, uh, I believe back in early May or so. And it's just been a pleasure to, to be able to pray for you and uh, finally to be here with you, of course. Now, this morning, I'd like to go ahead and turn our attention to Matthew chapter 13, uh, verses 24 through 43 from God's Word. And I'm sure that you'll notice right away, for many of you, uh, that you'll recognize this passage as one that is filled with parables concerning the kingdom of heaven. Now, to provide some further context, though, around these parables concerning the kingdom of heaven, uh, this idea of the kingdom of heaven is what a lot of theologians call a governing motif in all of Scripture. This verbiage of the kingdom of God is used well over 100 times, in fact, in the New Testament alone. And the kingdom of heaven itself is marked by so many wonderful things, but expressly a reign of peace inaugurated by Jesus' death in our place and resurrection for us. Furthermore, this is also prefigured, this kingdom of heaven even here in Matthew 13, as a foreshadow of, again, Christ's resurrection. And it reminisces back to passages like Psalm chapter 2, where Christ is on high and the nations are at his own feet, governing them there. See, under Jesus' reign, sins are forgiven. God's enemies are subdued at last. Judgment against sin and evil is accomplished. And the renewal of God's covenant people is at hand. And this grand work of God's kingdom of heaven making its way here to earth all happens with the king of kings himself at the center of it all. Now, we also know from the gospel accounts that the kingdom of grace is already here in our midst, and yet it is not fully here realized. And it won't be fully realized until Christ's return at the end of the age. But here, throughout the gospel accounts of Matthew chapter 3, verse 5, and Mark 1, 15, and Luke 10, 9 through 11, along with the Great Commission in Matthew 28, we see that this kingdom is, again, indeed, here and now, in part and in principle. And even now, Christ already has all authority and rule over it. And so his rule and his reign are meant to be proclaimed at all times, even here in the greater Williamsburg area, this morning, let alone throughout all of our days. Furthermore, his kingdom is to be entered into. His kingdom is good news for us who believe. And yet, according to this passage in Matthew 13, it is also here in this time before Christ's return, a spiritual kingdom. And it's likened by Christ's own words as a secret that is meant to be revealed to God's people for the purpose of our own hope in future eschatological events. So without further ado, I'd love to turn our attention again to Matthew 13 as we hear now from God's word, which is forever faithful and true and given to us in love. The word of God says this in Matthew 13, starting in verse 24, the parables of Jesus. He, meaning Jesus, put another parable before them, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. 
And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. But he said, or sorry, rather, let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all of the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All of these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Again, friends, this is God's word given to us in love. With this still fresh in our minds, let's come before him in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given us your word, the word of truth, to speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit as the message of Christ and his atoning death are proclaimed in this place. His life lived in our place and his death accomplished for us, accomplishing salvation. The righteous for the unrighteous. And so, God, we thank you that this message of the cross uh, humbles us and it prepares us to then hear the whole counsel of your word with Christ at the center. Lord, I ask that in this time uh, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, be impressing upon each one of our hearts here these spiritual truths that we are to take and be refreshed by and nourished by, that they would be a sweet melody of your praise to our ears even here in this time and that they would spur us on to good works, but even more importantly, to right worship of you. Lord, use me as your mouthpiece this morning to deliver your truth, that Christ would be magnified in everything that is said and done in this place. We pray that we would have ears to hear as the Spirit illuminates this truth for us that is unchanging. So we pray all this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Well, Francis, you have no doubt already heard this passage that we have just read, and it's admittedly long, right? 
But this passage is filled with both judgment against sin, but also the promise of life for those who are in Christ, those who are found in him, who have faith in him. See, Jesus here speaks of protection for God's people through his shepherd-like care over us. But he does not shrink back at the same time, as we just read, from declaring a word of warning, even for his church, let alone the listening world around him as we await his return. And so this passage, I believe, declares to us three particular words from Jesus' own mouth to our listening ears. First, a word of warning in verses 24 through 30. Second, a word of blessing in verses 31 through 35. And finally, a word of wisdom in verses 36 through 43. So again, a word of warning, a word of blessing, and a word of wisdom that we'll be examining here. Now, Matthew 13, 24, right at the start of this passage, opens up by telling us that Jesus put, in quote, another parable before them. And so we have to ask ourselves a couple questions in order to understand this. First, what is the purpose of these parables? And second, why did Jesus use parables in the first place? Well, here in Matthew 13, in our passage, we see a whole series of parables, beginning all the way back in verse 1, and even going beyond our passage that we read this morning. Parables, though, themselves are illustrations that help us to contemplate spiritual truths. All of these parables in Matthew 13 help us to understand, again, that governing motif, though, of the kingdom of heaven. Now, some of the parables that we've read even this morning, let alone the ones that surround this passage, are portrayed to us in a positive light. You know, it speaks of the parable of the hidden treasure, the pearl of great value, even the net that is cast into the sea and catches all kinds of fish, all of the nations being drawn to Christ. And yet other parables emphasize the reality of evil and even danger that is set against the people of God. And still others contain elements of both warning and blessing, if you will. And we see that even in our own passage this morning. So why then did Jesus speak to the crowds in parables in the first place? Well, verse 35, as we just read, gives us the answer to this. It says in verse 35 that he did this in order to fulfill the prophetic word of Psalm 78, verse 2, which in the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint says, as it's here for us, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Additionally, earlier on in Matthew 13, verse 11, when the disciples asked Jesus why he spoke in parables, after all, they were a bit confusing, (laughs) he answered them, to you, meaning his disciples, his followers, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, the, the crowds, those who are not in Christ, it has not been given. See, this Jesus stated in fulfillment of Isaiah 6, 9 through 10, For he came, after all, to gather into one the lost sheep of Israel from among all the nations of the earth. As such, Jesus is then seen through his parabolic teaching, but also through his prophetic preaching ministry uh, to be the true and the greater prophet. In the language of question 43 of our larger catechism, the Westminster Larger Catechism, Jesus is seen as the true prophet who reveals to us, his church, the whole will of God in all things concerning our edification and even our salvation. And so the parables then illustrate for us as believers the hidden things of God concerning his character, 
his sovereignty and even his redeeming work through the Son. See, through Jesus' person and work, the mysteries of God are made known to us through vivid imagery. His parables, furthermore, reveal to us uh, the treasure house that is ours to be had and to even behold in Christ. In the words of the Puritan Matthew Henry, parable and preaching both must be taken together here then. See, where preaching is purposed to clearly exposit truth, parables are purposed to disclose what has been kept hidden for the ages and yet revealed through Christ. Parables may indeed confound the world and confuse the world even as to their meaning, but they are given by Jesus to inform us who have ears to hear how we should live in light of the kingdom of heaven. Friends, here at Harvest Church, we must realize that the kingdom of heaven, again, is already in our midst, spiritually speaking. We see it even in the fact that God has built and gathered you here as his church over the last dozens or so of months, gathering you even in spite of seasons like COVID, which hopefully we never have to face again. We see it, though, in the fact that God has continued to be faithful to you all in the midst of trying times. And through your faithfulness that God has given to you, you are proving even here and now, even before my own eyes, to be citizens and saints of the life that is yet to come. And as we grow in number, and I pray we will, we must continue to bear fruit in keeping with our true nature then, as children of God, first and foremost. But looking again back at our text in this first third of our passage in verses 24 through 30, we begin to see here a word of warning right off the bat, even in the midst of positive growth. Jesus said, in quote, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, And please catch that again. While his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and then went away. Now, the Greek word for for compare that we see at the beginning of this parable, and even all three of the parables really in the Greek, is a powerful word. It serves for us as a kind of stop sign at the beginning of each one of these parables, causing us to stop and assess the nature of each one of these parables individually before we can move forward in our understanding of them and move through that intersection, so to speak. See, what is shared here in parabolic form is certainly illustrative and even figurative of uh, or, or by nature. Each word is carefully chosen to represent for us actual events that happened and are happening now even in the world around us. These parables are so much more, though, than just mere stories, things to make us feel good in the moment as we read them. These parables are truly apocalyptic or revelatory by nature. See, they reveal spiritual truths about things that are still to come, things that we haven't even yet witnessed around us. And just like the apocalyptic books in Scripture, like Daniel, and Revelation, Zechariah 14, and so many other passages, we see here in Matthew chapter 13 images of the final judgment, of angelic beings, of the future age, and of the restoration of God's created order. 
that he is intentionally bringing to fruition. But just like all of scripture, according to Luke 24, 46 through 47, in Jesus's own words, even these parables are there primarily to point us to Jesus's death and resurrection before they can ever teach us how we ought to live as Christians in this world, let alone consider the future age to come where Christ's reign is fully known. So what does Matthew 13 verses 24 through 30 reveal to us then? Well, first it reveals to us again, Jesus. It reveals to us that Jesus is indeed the master of the field, the world, and the sower of the good seed. He is the one whom the father has entrusted with the field and has created a people for his own possession by his own work. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.17 describes for us that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away and the new has come. As those who have faith in Christ, you and I then are, in Jesus' estimation, the good seed that has been sown in the world to bring him joy and delight. Even in this life, prior to that final harvest yet to come, where I believe we get our name from here at the Church of the Harvest, that coming day of Christ's glory revealed in all of its fullness. But this parable also reveals to us that we as Christians need to be watchful of the reality of evil here in this present age. And it's not just in the world. We we know from experience even, you and I as well, that evil so easily creeps into the life of the visible church. In the words of the late Presbyterian pastor, Jim Boyce, who taught at 10th Presbyterian for many, many years, he says this in his own commentary on this passage. He says that nothing good has ever come into the world without opposition. And that is especially true in spiritual matters. Jim goes on to say, here we face not only the hostility and opposition of mere people like ourselves, but even satanic and demonic opposition as well. This reality to the church of opposition is seen in the scattering of what is considered here as weeds in verse 25. See, this type of weed here, though, is a special kind of weed here in our passage. It's often translated here as weeds or maybe tares in your own copy of God's word, But in that agrarian culture, it was considered the kind of weed called Darnell. Now, as a techie who grew up in Seattle, Washington, uh, not in an agrarian culture, like even a lot of us maybe here in Virginia have grown up with, I admittedly had to look up what the word Darnell meant because I had no idea when I first saw it, aside from maybe it's some kind of weed. (laughs) But for my studies, I learned pretty quickly that Darnell is indeed not just a weed, but a poisonous weed, a weed that infiltrates It's a weed that often even during the early and and for several stages even of the cycle of growth looks so much like wheat up until the final end of the harvest itself. It appears just like the wheat. And it would take then in that agrarian culture a careful eye to even spot the difference between wheat and Darnell, let alone to know how to then treat the weeds properly and protect the precious wheat of the field. And so these weeds then presented not just an inconvenience for farmers, like a lot of us who have weeds in our own yards, (laughs) I'm speaking from experience here. Rather, these poisonous weeds actually had the potential to utterly destroy someone's livelihood and their labors 
for that entire year. Those who lived off the land dreaded the presence of these weeds. And so with this in mind, how do you think the master of this field would have normally reacted? I imagine he might have said, get rid of these weeds immediately, right? (laughs) Get them out of here. We don't want them here. And yet in verse 29, the parable takes an unexpected turn. We see the compassion of the sower even here in these words. The good sower says, let the weeds grow up with the wheat. Now, as a bit of a cliffhanger of sorts, we'll come back to that idea of letting the weeds grow up with the wheat at a later point in our third point of this message. But for now, you and I need to realize that the devil is indeed mixing weeds into the field of God's harvest, especially in what we call the visible church those who attend, who may or may not even be Christians at this point in time. In my own experience, I've, I've seen this over and over and over again in the past 13 or 14 years of my own ministry. And I imagine many of you as elders, pastors in the past, let alone church members of many years, have seen in your own experiences. In fact, we even alluded to many of them last night as we were gathering together. And yet, we recognize then that Workers of evil are often combined with the church. Some who are simply non-Christians who are interested in the things of Christ, but others who are even antagonistic toward the things of Christ and seek to destroy the church from the inside out. We have, therefore, to be discerning to the fact that there are indeed counterfeit Christians in our own culture who disguise themselves as true Christians, all for the sake of political power, So many politicians do this, or persuasion in our own culture, and they try to earn our trust through pretending to be believers. This is why healthy church discipline exists. It exists in order to help protect the church of Christ in accordance with 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. And as such, each one of us, I believe, not just pastors or elders or deacons, officers of the church, but all of us as members of Christ's church, have an active part here in tending to this and being mindful of these things. It's why here, even at Harvest, I believe you all have implemented so wisely the concept of relational wisdom. And I couldn't be more grateful for the work that I've already heard about, even at a distance, that you have been doing here for a number of years. But in our pursuit of positive discipleship and even corrective discipline when necessary, we always need to be careful to never discourage or damage accidentally those who are the wheat, those for whom Christ died, let alone those who would come to Christ who are not believers yet. But there is further warning here for our own good and our own protection in verse 27 of our parable. See, what do we make of these servants of the master? Our text says that they were caught sleeping. Theologians have long believed that these servants of the master are none other than pastors. And that is, I believe, a sobering warning to us. See, texts such as 2 Corinthians chapter 3 make clear to us that pastors are regarded as ministers of the new covenant and even servants of Jesus. And that same servant language is picked up here in our parable of Matthew 13. Christ himself, though, has established the office of the elder for the spiritual good of his people, not for them to be sleeping around (laughs) and ignoring the sheep, but rather to be on watch and on guard. Ephesians 4, 11 through 12, after all, tells us that Christ 
in a wonderful way, has given to the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers for what purpose? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, and for building up the body of Christ here on this earth. But in our parable, we see the danger of what happens when ministers of Christ are caught sleeping and fail to protect God's sheep. When ministers sleep, the church suffers. And so Christ issues a word of warning to us here. See, it is when the gospel of Christ is not preached, but furthermore, when the scriptures are not seen as sufficient for all of our lives, when we don't take them seriously and truly apply them, and when the church fails to hear and respond to the word of Christ in both word and deed, it is when all these things happen that the enemy makes inroads in the church. To quote Matthew Henry again, he says this, that Satan watches all opportunities and lays hold of all advantages to propagate vice and profaneness, even in the church. And so you and I must be on guard, on guard against those evil schemes of the devil. Now, as a church plant desiring to grow in both number and in strength of our witness here for Christ's glory in the greater Williamsburg area, we must then heed the warning of Christ himself. As we desire to share the gospel with our friends and community here in this area, in this region, uh, the enemy will, and I believe already has, had his target on us here at Harvest. But know this, there is hope. See, the field, the world even, belongs to King Jesus. And he has not left us without his spirit's presence and his counsel. Pastors then, and those who serve you, in love, are to be diligent in watching over Christ's flock for whom he died. But even when, and we will unfortunately fail to protect the church, even when we do, Christ will never lose his authority over you, the wheat that he holds so dear, let alone the field, and even his authority over the weeds in the field. The harvest indeed is plentiful, and it all belongs to King Jesus. And so come whatever toils or struggles, Jesus will possess his field at the end. And in fact, he cannot fail to possess his field. A bruised reed he will not break, and a single stalk of wheat he will not let be uprooted by the evil one. And so this initial word of blessing leads us now to, a, a word of warning rather, leads us now to a word of blessing that we see here in the second point in verses 31 through 35. And admittedly, these last two points will be much shorter than the first. <laughs> see, Jesus here in these even much shorter parables speaks now of a grain of mustard seed and of leaven that is worked into three measures of flour. Both of these parables stand, though, in stark contrast to what we've already read We've read about the weeds earlier that in the first parable, these weeds are seen infiltrating the world and even the church. And yet here, by the sower's power, we see him, the same sower, Jesus, sowing a mustard seed, the tiniest of all of the seeds of the garden plants that would rise up and even the leaven being worked into the world. We see here then this illustration of the unstoppable permeation of the kingdom of grace in this present age, in contrast to the advancement of the poison of the weeds 
And so what is their message for us, these two shorter parables? Well, it's this, that the word of truth, the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection, is indeed a force to be reckoned with. The gospel cannot be stopped. See, though evil men will go from bad to worse in this life, in the same way, the kingdom of heaven, which has already broken through because of Jesus' coming to earth, will triumph at the last. It cannot be stopped. And that's good news for us. Looking at the text, though, again, starting in verse 31, Jesus himself is seen as the sower here. He is the man, after all, who took the grain of mustard seed, planted it in the field, which, again, he owns. That's so key. (laughs) He owns the field. And he cultivated it to full fruition. Similarly, like the leaven that is taken from an outside source and kneaded into the measures of flour, the whole of the flour is eventually leavened forever changed by the presence of that small little ounce of yeast. See, friends, such is the kingdom of God in this world. The kingdom advances through gradual, incremental growth. It is not seen in the changing of political powers as much as I personally would love to think that it could be. It is not seen in moments of cultural revival or a change of scene even around us, or when phenomenons such as recent Supreme Court rulings happen and we become excited about what could be as morality is raised up again to where it should be. Rather, the kingdom's growth is a slow spiritual advancement of the power of the gospel that brings those who were once enemies of God all the way to salvation's door. It is the tilling of the soil of our hearts as the Spirit readies us to receive the implanted word with meekness. It is the message of Christ crucified for our sins in our place that produces praise that cannot be contained. A grain of mustard seed and a single ounce of wheat, or or yeast rather, may have humble beginnings. But their end, both of them, is the blessing of God's people and the everlasting praise of his glorious grace. As the pastor Dan Doriani says in his commentary on Matthew 13, he says this, that from small beginnings come growth and the transformation of all things. Friends, what excites me the most about this idea of church planting with you all and this potential opportunity to even serve as your pastor, Lord willing, is that we, you and I alike, will be able to see before our own eyes God's work in our midst. Fourteen years ago, speaking from the heart here especially, I began praying fervently and even by God's leading, uh, fasted for about 40 weeks here and there, for God to begin a church planting movement in Virginia. At the time, I had Lynchburg in mind in central Virginia, but I can't help but also pray for the entire commonwealth. Many of you already know that the town of Williamsburg has this incredibly rich history of gospel revival that has already taken place here. We see it even when we look at church history through the work of various Presbyterians and Reformed pastors such as Samuel Davies and Francis McAmey. Three centuries ago during the First Great Awakening, as we were talking about last night at the gathered group, God used his people here in the same region of Virginia to chart the course of not only our own American church history, uh, but even our nation's history. It has had a lasting and profound impact on our entire culture when God's people were humbled before him and he did a mighty work through them. I'm convinced that God can 
and Will uses people even here in Lynchburg, or Williamsburg, rather. <laughs> Hopefully Lynchburg, too. <laughs> to bring forth spiritual revival once more. See, the kingdom's DNA is designed to grow and to advance like yeast and flour and a carefully planted mustard seed, after all. But lest we become conceited or ever prideful in our own work here for God's glory, we must first recognize that the kingdom's success does not rise and fall on any of us as individuals, let alone even here as a church plant gathered here at harvest. See, the kingdom will advance as the spirit of Christ brings the dead to life, a work only he can do, as he transfers enemies of God into the kingdom of his loving grace. This, friends, will keep us humble. But we can and should, all the while, continue to pray that God will use us and pray boldly at that. After all, he is pleased to use you, and I hope you know that. You and I must be mindful then of the sustaining power of God as we then grow. But we must also recognize the adversity that will await us as we seek to be light in the midst of spiritual darkness all around us. Church planting is, I believe, the hardest work to be done in all of the world. If you've kept up with the news for any length of time in recent years, especially in light of COVID and all these things we've experienced, you know that we are living in truly turbulent times. Biblical manhood and womanhood, for instance, have been forsaken in our own culture. Things that we never thought would happen are happening before our eyes. Sexual identification has become our culture's new religion, replacing Christianity. And even in regard to the church, we have seen friends and family walk away and forsake the faith and deny Christ with their own words and actions alike. But friends, I am more than convinced that he who began a good work in you is faithful to carry it on till the day of completion in Christ Jesus. God can and he will use each one of us as believers to spread the yeast of his kingdom into all the earth. He is not done with our town of Williamsburg and Toano and New Kent and beyond. Is he not the master sower himself after all? Is Christ not after all the master of his field? Is Christ not after all the one who works by his Holy Spirit reigning from on high through us, the church, the effects of grace into our lives, let alone the church abroad? To quote the famous theologian John Calvin, do not therefore be offended or disregard the small beginnings of the gospel. Friends, he is clearly at work here at Harvest. I've already seen it the past 24 plus hours now, even at this point. And it's seen in your tireless efforts and work to see Christ be magnified. And it's seen even here in our worship together. And as members of Christ's beloved kingdom, even the figurative birds of the air cannot help but then be blessed by your presence here. See, such a word of blessing was conferred upon the people of God in the Old Covenant in Ezekiel chapter 17. If you like, you're welcome to flip over to Ezekiel 17 verses 22 through 24. But the word of God here to the people of Israel, those who were of the covenant there in the Old Testament that we also belong to, 
God spoke to them here saying this, thus says the Lord God, I will myself make or take rather a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs, a tender one, and I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel, I will plant it that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. And all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree and make high the low tree. I dry up the green tree and I make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. Friends, do you believe that he's already doing that here? here through the church. Even the birds of the air, who earlier on in Matthew 13 were compared to enemies of God, plucking up the good seed from the soil, even they will be indirectly blessed by your presence here in this area, especially as we live in light of King Jesus' reign. This then brings us to our third and final point for the morning. Here in verses 36 through 43, then we see a word of wisdom. Wisdom that will surround us and inform us in our living. Contextually speaking, after the crowds had left, the disciples approached Jesus and asked him to explain to them the meaning of the parables, especially the parable of the weeds. Again, it was confusing to them. Jesus then clarified for them in verse 37, the one who sows the good seed is who? The son of man. Now, this is a direct reference to the apocalyptic passage of Daniel chapter 7 the Son of Man, that Daniel saw even then. And though we don't have time to unravel the whole meaning of the Son of Man here, maybe at a later date, (laughs) this message of Jesus as the Son of Man is so poignant for our understanding. See, it's important to note that Jesus intentionally picks up this language of the Son of Man because, again, it is apocalyptic. It's revelatory of what is still even yet to come. But it also signifies to us, even now, his divinity and his sovereignty over us as the people of God. And again, he does this with apocalyptic language, saying that he is indeed the Son of Man as it regards the coming judgment against God's enemies and the end of the present age in which sin is still present. See, the overarching message then of Christ's sermon here in verses 36 through 43 is vital. Jesus will return in power and in glory. And he already has come in his first coming here in his incarnation to destroy the works of the devil, as 1 John 3, 8 tells us. The weeds will not choke or ruin the harvest which he has set forth in motion. And when his ministering angels come at the last, the final day, they will gather out of his kingdom all causes for sin and all lawbreakers with that. They will throw them into the fiery furnace of God's wrath. And in that place of eternal punishment, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But in this way, there is hope for God's people. See, in this way, the righteous, in the absence of sin, will shine forth like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Friends, this is indeed for us who believe then a message of deliverance. But it is also one of judgment for those who are not in Christ. We often shrink back from speaking of such judgment against sin in our own culture, to our own detriment, all in the name of tolerance. 
But Jesus loves us far too much for us to be ignorant of God's righteous wrath against sin. He directly spoke against sin and even spoke of hell directly throughout all the Gospels. And here in Matthew 13, he captivates our mind's eye by telling us that there is indeed a day of judgment coming for the weeds who are not in him. This day, though, is marked by separation. It's marked by the separation of all, again, sin and lawbreakers from the presence of God's field, even, the world. The poisonous darnel that we read of earlier that opposed the sower and sought to choke out the precious wheat whom he loves will be carefully on that final day uprooted, sifted out, and tossed away for eternal punishment as they have sinned against the everlasting and eternal God who is holy. Now, I do not say any of this lightly. It is a sobering thing to speak of hell and of even the hellfire that we read of in Scripture. See, the reality of hellfire, though, is that it is forever consuming, but the enemies of God are never consumed for their eternal and everlasting sin against this eternal, everlasting God. It is a place filled with weeping, though, and gnashing of teeth. And throughout all of the Old Testament, the many references to the grinding of teeth are a direct sign of God's enemies' derision and even the taunting that they place and heap up against God and his people. And so the same verbal construct of weeping and gnashing of teeth is used no less than seven times in the New Testament alone, especially in the Gospels, but even in Revelation. Each one of these instances, though, where this verbal construct is used, it makes a direct reference to hell. The place of eternal judgment reserved for those who do not enter the kingdom of heaven. Here there is burning, darkness, and everlasting anger continued forever at God's behest. And so for those who are outside of Christ, who stand before God as rebels and breakers of his good, holy law, there is just judgment as it stands against them. But for all of us who are God's people, who have repented of our sins and have called upon the name of Jesus for salvation by his kind grace toward us, there is and stands for any who call upon him, even now, a day of vindication, a day of righteousness, where sin will be forever gone, a day where evil will be no more. Any abuse that you have faced, defamation of character, ridicule, theft, fornication, cheating, debasement, and debauchery, and the like, will all be destroyed at the last. You won't ever have to experience that again. And in that way, the righteous will shine forever like the sun. That day is coming for you, believer. And so there's an application for us. See, even in this world, when we experience the weight of sin and its entanglements and the shame and guilt that are heaped up upon us, we can still have hope that there is a day of rescue coming that's been designed and crafted far in advance by our loving Savior. See, the good sower will carefully separate out the evil from the good and bring us to a place of eternal blessing and peace as his first fruits. In the words of John Calvin, again, Christ speaks of this day of separation then in order to prevent the minds of the godly, those who fear God from giving way to uneasiness or despondency, meaning sadness, 
when they perceive a confused mixture of the good with the bad here. And so we need to be alert to the fact that the devil has and will seek to dismantle the growth of the kingdom from the inside out. But again, he will not succeed. And so even as the wheat, the weeds appear similar to us, even in this life, God yet knows those who are his. He will separate them out at the end. There is both judgment, but also plentiful reward. Good news for those who are in Christ. Bad news for those who are God's enemies who continue in their sin. Again, in the words of John Calvin, many hypocrites will mingle into the visible church. And so we must be armed with patience. See, for us as Christians, then, we need to recognize the discomfort, then, that comes from evil's presence. We can't be oblivious to it. We would go a little insane if we did try to do it that way, (laughs) to just ignore evil. Rather, we must let the brokenness that we experience make us long all the more for Christ's return and the renewal of all things at his own hand. See, even in spite of evil's infusion into the present-day world, let alone the church, God will protect his church. And so in closing, I want to remind us of this precious truth of the gospel. See, just like the parables, the death and resurrection of Christ speak to us three words. Words of warning, words of blessing, and words of wisdom. The word of warning regards our own sin, as we've read about. And we find a parallel, I believe, in Ephesians 2. See, Ephesians 2 tells us that we ourselves were once dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, By grace, you have been saved. And so this word of blessing regards all of us who are in Christ. For as Ephesians 2 goes on to say, we are indeed his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And finally, this word of wisdom is also here before us. This word of wisdom comes to us in this fact, that because Jesus has made us his own, He dares not lose even one of us. Each one of you are precious to him. In this life, Christ would rather permit the presence of the weeds than in any way endanger you, his precious wheat. And so friends, Church of Christ, let this message motivate us, each one of us, in both our evangelism, but also our exercise of wisdom as we seek to plant this church. With this in mind, let's go ahead and pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are from everlasting to everlasting. We know that you have always been with the Father by his side, as Proverbs 8 tells us. By you, even, you formed the world, and all things, as Colossians tells us, were made in and through and even for you, O Christ. And so, God, we ask that you would continue to impress upon our hearts these precious truths regarding the gospel of your glorious grace. Would you remind us that we are beloved in your sight and that we belong to you, King Jesus. I pray for these precious saints here at Harvest, that you would continue to encourage them in the midst of good growth, growth that we are already seeing right before us, and that you would set this people apart 
for the wonderful work of the advancement of the gospel here in the greater Williamsburg area. Jesus, we ask all these things and so many more by the power of your holy name. Amen.